for winning. And we are anxiously awaiting the switch to hockey. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Michael G. Nastas here in the studio. We are taping this this program on May 4th, 2022, but we're here. We're inside um, the inner sanctum of WCBN um, back in Prod A, Michael, thanks so much for being here today. Happy to be here, obviously. It's always great to be on the airwaves of the station that I've loved since the very beginning when I was an undergraduate in the early 70s, and now I'm back doing other shows. And I want to talk about writing because I really think that writing is essential to communicating, and, and, and that's something that some people don't pay much attention to. And I think that it's obvious when you hear them on the radio misusing words or slang or whatever. It, it, the the culture is so much different now when it when there's everybody is allowed to do certain things on the radio that they weren't allowed to do during the seven dirty words of of George Carlin many years ago and so i think it's unnecessary to use those words to emphasize a point so that's my theory on that and i'm just glad to be on a station that allows us to talk and play music and do living writers and and all the great things that we do here and more people should pay attention to wcbm because <laughs> this is a great station it's got a lot of potential for anybody that might want to listen yeah or join become part of the community come on down um or listen because that's the listening is being part of the community Absolutely. for CBN, too. And so you mentioned being an undergrad here, um, Michael, back in the the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've got on the table before us, because we're here, because Michael G. Nastis, he is, um, you might know his voice from WEMU radio broadcasting. You might know his voice from Milan Drag Racing announcing. Um, so you might be quite familiar with his voice or on Sundays, um, the the sounds from the subcontinent, um, Pan African Heartbeat, mm-hmm. among other shows. And I get to do a freeform show every once in a while. I'm tempted to do one today, but I'm not going to do it. But I'll be back on doing anything. You well, know, we'll see. We'll see. Some hour. <laughs> I mean, Michael says he's going to leave, but I think he might, he might be doing one. Um, so yeah, but we have here with us. We have archival materials um, from. Michael, from the work that you've done um, as a writer, that is is much of it is very connected to your love of of music, um, and so it starts. I mean, actually, I want to know when it starts because right here on the table with us, with the paper artifacts that we have, we have the CBN notes, um, which was the first WCBN newsletter, um, volume one, number one, February nineteen seventy five. And, um, and, and in this, uh, uh, you're actually, you're the assistant editor of this first issue (laughs) and, um, your, your byline is Mike Nastis. Yeah. So we, we don't even have the G yet. We're going to get to the G. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but yeah, what did it, what, what did it start for writing for you, Michael? Because I have a sense of music for you, um, from reading our wolf, our wolf's, um, portrait and profile of you, um, back in let's see september was it 87 
I guess it was, or, yeah. Or 97 in the agenda. Right. Which sounds like such, I mean, we've got so many great print materials here. Um, but so you're riding your bicycle on the outskirts of Milan, um, listening to a transistor radio that was roped to your bicycle and learning about John Coltrane. And so that's how music and maybe jazz came into your life. But how did the writing come in? The writing came in because I did well with it, but I wasn't an English major. And when we got to WCBN, the CBN notes or this newsletter that told people about all the kinds of music that we were playing on the radio station stemmed from a group of individuals who are working here. And it was a prolific group of people who eventually all went on to professional careers. I want to drop a few names. Ken Burns used to hang out at the radio station. Uh, Carmen Harlan, who is a prominent newscaster in Detroit, was part of this. Andrea Joyce was part of Olympics coverage and went on to a great career as a journalist. Tavi Fulkerson, who was my partner in jazz and blues, worked with me at another radio station in Ann Arbor, WIQB, but she went on to form her own production company, which promoted the early Montreux Detroit Jazz Festivals. And then we had Mark Bryant, who led the Urban League, Guy Ludwig, who was a Broadway producer, John Giese, who went on to a radio career in Phoenix. Ross Ojeda was the general manager at that point in time. He went on to a career at A&M Records. And I could just keep dropping names about all these great people that came to the University of Michigan, of which I was surrounded with, to went on. They all went on to professional careers. We're not even starting to talk about Eclipse Jazz, because Eclipse Jazz was the entity here at the University of Michigan, award-winning, by the way, that was started by Jim Robbins, taken on by Lee Berry and Michael Groff Sorian to great heights, and became the premier Midwest jazz organization presenting music here at the University of Michigan on a regular basis. So the people at University Musical Society and major events came into my office as the music director in the mid-70s and said, we'd like to connect with you to help promote our gigs. And so we established a program called Jazz, called jazz Around Midnight, and it was a six-night-a-week show. Tavi was a host. Michael Lang from School Kids Records was a host. I was a host. We had a great crew of people who actually knew something and promoted the Eclipse Jazz concerts. And then eventually the Eclipse Jazz festivals, which took place in, I want to say, 78, 79, and 80 before the Detroit festivals came on and kind of put us out of business. But we did tributes to Duke Ellington, Charles Mingus, John Coltrane, massive, massive concerts at Hill Auditorium with all the best people. And we were lucky enough to be able to get those people in, charge a nominal fare for tickets. We didn't really charge a lot of money. I mean, now if Oscar Peterson were alive, were alive it would cost you $80, $90, and we, we had a $5 admission charge. So that started it all. But then I started writing, and it's just like radio. The more you do radio, the more you think you can be good at it. So the more you write, the better your writing gets. I was never a great, flowery, flourishing writer. I didn't hype. I did some publicity campaigns, but I, I, I still don't write that way. I like to give people the facts, give them nuggets of information, and let them take it wherever they want to. So that's how my writing is based upon. You give them a little bit of information and let them go with it. Now with the Internet, they've really got to explore. But we can give them dialogue and comparisons. If you like Joe Henderson, you might like um, Joe Lovano or whatever. You know, there, there are all kinds of comparisons to people that I could tell you about personally. But because people don't listen to the radio for that anymore, they can get that information on the Internet. And that's the basis of what we started with the All Music Guide which is probably the thing that I am most proud of. Michael Erlewine and I founded the All Music Guide, which is the most comprehensive database of music in the world. And and he interviews you um, for a, a Michigan music sort of ethnography profile. Mm -hmm. You, Michael, and people could find that on YouTube. Yes, they can. 
And and so why when you say, I mean, because that's interesting. It's the perhaps the most important thing that you've been part of or that you've made this all music guide. Why? I think so because it's all pervasive. It's not just about jazz or blues or classical or contemporary or romantic music or pop music. And 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 the office is located in Ann Arbor. It's based here. So they have they have writers here who have worked for them, who have lived and haven't done, done any kind of national or international journalism for any kind of publications. But but they're all based here in a building out on the south side of Ann Arbor, and they contribute to this database every single day. And as as you are, well, maybe not every day. But I haven't you're still I haven't worked for, I haven't worked for the All Music Guide for quite a few years. Okay, so but you're you've still got your hand in with writing. It's all archived, <laughs> and it's all you know. It's all documented, and you know. You can but go with and, new projects, Michael, too. Well, I have, have other that. new projects going too, but this is the early days. We're talking about Michael Erlewine being in town and having this vision of what he can do with this database, which was just books. It was Miller Freeman books, and several volumes of. All Music Guide, All Music Guide to Jazz, All Music Guide to Blues, all, and he's deep into the blues. He was originally with the uh, the Iggy Pop drummed group called, um, oh, I can't remember their name. Anyway, he was with a group called the Prime Movers. The Prime Movers were a big group in Ann Arbor that featured Michael and Iggy. And so that's where he got some of his basis. And then he just started interviewing blues artists all over the country especially at the Ann Arbor Blues and the Ann Arbor Blues and Jazz Festivals, and that's where the All Music Guide basis came. And then it turned into a database, and it turned into technological just expanse. Because people would come through Ann Arbor, it was a, or Detroit, like this area, right, Michael, for years. Like, so that's why there was access to the musicians who were coming through. We also have, which I think you're also a part of, um, making pe- people aware of and promoting local talent that's homegrown um, in jazz, especially. Well, uh, I think that we have a very fortunate circumstance in that there's a center of music in Chicago, and there's a center of music in New York, and a center of music, obviously, in New Orleans. But Detroit, Metro Detroit, has spawned more musicians that have come out of Detroit and into the world framework. Craig Taborn was a U of M student. Tim Reese, who plays with the Rolling Stones, for years and years and years, U of M. Gerald Cleaver. We have great musicians like Ellen Rowe, Paul Keller, John Churchville, who played the tabla drums that we heard earlier. We have great musicians who live here and work here and continue to contribute to the community. And we're trying to get, as best we can, my group anyway, my community groups, getting this music to people live so that they can hear live music. It's nice to hear it on the radio, but but I'm always communicating with musicians who need a little bit of a boost and maybe a writing job or a couple of paragraphs, maybe a, a sentence or a you know poll vote or something that gives them a little bit more credibility, let's say. Now, I also vote for Neris and the Grammys, but I don't know that my votes mean that much. My votes do mean something in the Downbeat Critics Poll, Ellen Trousseau, which is a European music poll. It's now Arts Fuse, which used to be the Village Voice or the NPR music poll. They've changed uh, basis. Uh, I wrote for Cadence Magazine for many years, monthly. I've written for Downbeat, written for other international magazines, and now I'm with Hot House Magazine in New York City, which I've been with now for 11 years. The Bible of New York City jazz and in existence now for 40 years. I'm in that magazine every month, and I just brought you a copy of my most recent work. We do something called Spotlight. It gives you 130 words on an artist that's playing in the area, and it's usually 10 artists that we feature. I have four of those articles. <laughs> so I'm in 40% of, of, of the artists that are playing in New York City, 
What a great, great opportunity. So how do you research those pieces, Michael? Like, how do you go? Because the spotlight, the idea is they're going to be playing live in New York City. So this is to get folks um, so they know about them if they don't already and to go. So how do you approach doing a 130 word piece that works in spotlight? I get an assignment. We get a list of artists that we can choose from. And then I choose five or six, put them in priority order. I'd like to write about Maria Schneider. I'd like to write about Gerald Clayton. I'd like to write about Tammuz Nissim, which I know nothing about. <laughs> and then and then, the next day, my editors give me the assignments, and then I start working. And I try to get it in early so that the deadline is not issued or that there's you know no tightness of you know if there are questions with what I wrote or whatever and then so do you just start listening to their albums and research online I and... get I get a lot of CDs in the mail every day and if I don't have a CD or I know nothing about Tammuz Nissim the Israeli singer I go to YouTube I go to the website I look at her bio Do you it's... ever use the extensive WCBN collection here michael no. has that ever no. come in handy no, no it's never but but i'm really proud having been the music director in the mid 70s to be able to have this collection over my shoulder that is gargantuan especially the vinyl collection that we have here it's just astonishing what we have access to and then we have a full cd library a lot of people use spotify i don't people download or stream i don't I'd rather have a CD player that's hooked up to my wonderful stereo and be able to listen to it closely. And 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 I, I think that people are short-sighted when they think that CDs are obsolete. They're not. LPs are coming back. I've bought some in recent months, you know, that are only available on, on LP, on vinyl. But I just think that the CD is still as valuable a commodity as anything. And, and everybody has them. I mean... Like I said, I get 15 CDs a week at least, at the very least. So people are producing them. I've produced my own. You know, we heard my CD played on the radio here just a few minutes ago, and I just think that CDs aren't going away anytime fast. Yeah, so could you talk a little bit about what we heard at the top of the program? I have two new recordings, one which was recorded at WCBN many years ago. It's called Adobe on the Gobi. This idea of an adobe hut on the Gobi Desert tends to lean towards my concept of what is world music. We have many different cultures converging. An adobe hut, maybe Mexican, on the adobe, on the Gobi Desert. I just like that thought. <laughs> then I'm very interested in the music of John Hassel, the trumpeter from the West Coast who passed on recently. So I did a John Hassel project many years ago. And my friend Sue Gillis out at Ann Arbor AV out in Saline produced these CDs, and now they're commercially available. And I did a band camp or Indiegogo or, you know, I did a, a crowdfunding source to get the first one done. The second one I'm doing on my own. So those musics are available to anybody who wants them, and I'll just, I'll just give them to you. You know, they were available as premiums on the, on the fundraiser recently. So, um, but they're not jazz. Yeah, they're not jazz. They're world music concepts with John Churchill on tabla and Rob Crozier on bass, and Mark Kirshenman, the U of M professor on trumpet, among others. And is this so? This is the the music that you love making is more this this world music fusion. Yes, that's true. And you've even dabbled in the gamelan. I was part of the original Gamelin Music organization. Here on campus. Here at U of M, yeah. I did one year where I played the mellophone <laughs> amongst about 30 other musicians. Because your so your background with his, your your history with music, rather, begins at a very early age. You were six when you learned to play the piano and then seven when you got into percussion. Mm -hmm. That's true. Janet Hurtler. My next door neighbor taught me a little bit about the piano, and then I realized the piano is a percussion instrument. So I still have a Fender Rhodes in my apartment. I play that or compose on it fairly infrequently, but
but I have all kinds of different instruments, wood drums, steel drums, bass drums, bowed cymbals, all kinds of extended techniques, which I've gotten from other people. I can't say that I invented any of them. Now, the one invention that I do have is called a hubcaphone. Henry Threadgill from Air had a hubcap strapped onto some um, bars lying flat as a vibraphone. Mine is a vertical. So I have an upright. I have six different hubcaphones with different metal hubcaps, and then I strike them with mallets and have them all tuned to different pitches so that I can figure out just exactly what kind of melody or harmony or whatever I can play. I've, those are stashed in Celine in a storage unit. But they've got to come out eventually. <laughs> I've got to be able to play them again. I feel that those would make a wonderful addition to this this room here that we're in, Michael. I don't know if it could happen because the local music show happens here every Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um and it would just, right now, it's sort of interesting to see what we're surrounded with because often the space is not like it looks like now. Um, there's always the piano and the organ. Um, yes. But here we have a full drum kit, um, a tambourine. Um, I don't know. It's just, it feels like we should start playing something. And you were tempted when you saw the drum kit when well, you, you yeah. came in. Ken Kazor and I are planning on coming out and doing another live music show. We'll do the second John Hassel project along with bass player Todd Perkins sometime this summer, I hope. And that might take place here at oh, yeah. CBN. Oh, no, it would take and, place. And with Jason Voss Engineering? Could uh, be. Again, maybe. We'll okay. bring him back, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, so you know what? Let's take a short break, Michael, and then we'll come back. Today on Living Writers, Michael G. Nastis is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you're just in time. Today on the program, Michael G. Nastis is here. I'm T. Hetzel, and you've got Living Writers. Michael, would you mind telling us a little bit about what we just heard then? That is the John Hassel Project, which was inspired by a trip that I took to Ohio State University on one day. I did a day trip, and I went down there to hear John Hassel. He had an album out on ECM Records, And I have always liked his music. He's a wonderful trumpeter. Worked with Brian Eno. And invented something called Fourth World Possible Musics. And this trip to Ohio State was completely spontaneous. He wasn't on tour. He just did this gig. And so I drove down there and heard him. And I was floored by what I was able to hear live. And then after the show, I was able to actually speak to him for almost a half an hour. And I was very inspired. So I came back and I said, I'd like to reinterpret his music. Mark Kirshenman, who is once again trumpeter and U of M professor, who does the Creative Arts Orchestra, is also of like mind. So we got together and we did this project here in the studios at WCBN. And the John Hassel Project came out as what you just heard. That's the first volume. Ken Kazora, who plays the trumpet, and myself and Todd Perkins will do a second version later on this summer, which we'll do on live music, on the live music show. So I just think that John's music is unique unto itself. And over this last summer, he passed away, summer of 2021. And I didn't realize it until the fall. So I made up my mind to revive this project with different players. Mark is very busy, but Ken is very, very comfortable with this music and is quite capable. Todd Perkins will play the bass, the electric bass, and I will play percussion and electronics. 
And I think that this will be another, uh, it'll probably come out next year. I'll have the Ann Arbor AV people and Sue Gillis out in Celine to produce it. And then we'll, we'll do a follow-up. Because I really think John Hassel's music deserves recognition. So, and so when you say you were inspired to reinterpret it, because well, that seems very close to writing to me as well, like when you're talking about translations. and So can you talk a little, about, little bit about how you're reinterpreting it's it's Someone's... it's spontaneous improvisation. It's not writing, setting a tone and saying, let's play this and do this. I would like Todd on bass to set up riffs and Ken to overlap it with his electronic trumpet. And maybe he's got a bunch of percussion and electronics that we can do. And then I can be underneath it because I don't feel like a formidable voice to lead as I do feeling like I can create an underpinning about a foundation where the other musicians can build off it. And that's that's my role as a musician. I'm not a leader, although I am kind of leading it, but I, I'm leading it in concept with a shared vision of what these other musicians are capable of doing. Well, talking let's let's talk more about visions and um and live music. Um because you've you've intersected and it seems like this person this maker this musician has had a huge influence on you Sun Ra um, as a writer you were able to interview him and and place an interview uh, out there in the world um, capturing how that moment with him uh, how did how did this come to be because he was coming to Ann Arbor he was going to play in town well, he did play in town quite a bit at various venues. We had him at the Ann Arbor Jazz Festival back in the 70s with John Sinclair and Peter Andrews. He played at the New Old Brick. He played at the Eclipse Jazz Festivals. He played at all kinds of venues. I must have seen him at least 30 times. Wow. Jason Voss... <laughs> who is also a big advocate of Sun Ra's music and posts a Facebook page every every week. Probably a bigger advocate because he has access. And, and he did a show called Interplanetary Music here on WCBN, which I, I wish we could come back with. But Sun Ra has this interesting myth about him that's not really myth at all. It's all truth. And John Zwed wrote a book about Sun Ra, about his history being Herman Blunt coming up in the... Fletcher Henderson band and being an arranger and composer and then finally forming the orchestra. Sun Ra is the most visionary musician I've ever heard. I just can't think of anybody else besides maybe Duke Ellington or contemporarily Maria Schneider and her big band. There's a certain area where they're looking ahead. There, as my friend T.J. Tone says, looking far out on the horizon, not being self-contained, looking into the future. And so as a futurist, I think Sun Ra set the tone for many musicians who have tried to follow the same path, but I don't know if they, any, any of them really do the same thing. I mean, I don't know. Marshall Allen is still alive. He's leading an orchestra. He was just in town a few weeks ago in, and um, I think in Dearborn. And other musicians who have survived carry Sun Ra's traditions on. I don't know that anybody can do it as well as the Ra did when he was here with us and in town. And there are some pivotal recordings. Many of many, many, many recordings that he's done. I don't know if you can differentiate, but there's still an archive out there and still recordings that haven't been released. And I just think that Sun Ra as a futurist is giving us an idea of what can be. But an Afrofuturist. Afrofuturist, and that's a contemporary term now. But you, re you read an article that I wrote for the Ann Arbor News on Sun Ra the day after the Challenger exploded. And I think that's probably one of the more telling pieces of writing that I've ever done. Marla Camp did a great, great graphic on Ra at that point in time, completely original. And the Ann Arbor News let me write about him. Thank you, Jeff Mortimer, my editor. 
And it was just, you know, go challenging space. It's a losing proposition. You know, after the Challenger exploded, and I remember seeing the Challenger exploding on live TV. Uh, I'll never forget that day. And then I talked to Sun Ra right afterwards. So it was pretty fascinating to hear his viewpoint on we're invaders. We're challenge, and, and now that you see Elon Musk going on to outer space with celebrities, I just think it's silly. It's just my opinion. But there are certain aspects of space that I think we should be looking at and exploring. And I'm really a big Star Trek fan. I'll never be a Star Wars fan. I'll always be a Trekkie. And I think that show really sets the tone for what we can do without all the extravagant expense or sending celebrities, you know, to the moon. It's just silly. The telescopes, the Voyagers, the kind of probes that we're sending in space is going to allow us to learn more about the fact that we're not the only ones in the universe. We still haven't figured that out. I mean, I still think that we haven't figured that out, that we're, we're, we think we're the omniverse of the universe. We think we're the centerpieces. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But well, that's a, that's a well, debate. So what was it like to... So, so this is one of your big interviews, I think, in the lifetime, right, Michael? Like, I fair think, to say, I think it's the, the I think it's the biggest that I've ever done. The yeah. biggest. Okay, so let's let's talk about that moment. How how did you, you know, what was it like talking with him? Where did you talk with him? Like, bring us to the moment. I didn't have to do anything. Okay. Could I have spaceship? <laughs> could I could I have talked about his music? In the 60s and 70s, or even before that, could I have talked about his current music? No. Could I have talked about what he envisions as his future music? No, I didn't have to do that. The, the, the instance of the moment dictated the interview. And I didn't have to say anything. I, just, I, just, I didn't even have to mention the challenger. He mentioned it to me. So this is the glory of being able to do an interview with somebody who already can speak. You don't have to grill them. You don't have to ask them questions that have been asked many, many times over. Now, I have done that with Tony Williams and Nina Simone. Why did you ask me that question? Oh, I don't want to talk to you about that. Why would you ask me that? Oh, you're trying to steal my stuff, said Tony Williams. Nina Simone wasn't in the mood. She said, call me back in 20 minutes, and I did, and then she was great. But these are really difficult artists to interview. Tony Williams, very specific and very particular and almost insulted. And Nina Simone, I don't even have to go into that. She was difficult to interview initially. She said, why would you want me to ask me that? And then I came back to her 20 minutes later and she was in a better mood. So most artists are very forthcoming. I have done articles and interviews for years and years and years, both live, on the radio, and for publications. And and I can't think of anybody else that said, nah, I don't want to talk about that. Or, that's none of your business. Or, let's talk about something else. So, so with, um, so, circling back to Sun Ra, so were you, did you just meet up? And sit in his hotel room, or it was, were you it was, on stage? It was, a, it was a phoner. It was a, oh, okay. Yeah, most of the interviews I did were phoners in the old Ann Arbor News offices, which, of course, they don't exist anymore. They're a little bit down the road. So, with a phone interview, did you ever find that it was? Hmm. Harder than the times when you were in person with someone, or did you have any? Because um, sometimes when you're in person, you can show that you're listening, but with the phone, you can be kind of disconnected. Well, you know, it's not like Zoom, that's for sure. I mean, thank goodness, in a way. <laughs> the, the whole idea that Zoom has taken over the universe with communications is, to me, quite remarkable. And for me, it was just you sit down, you have a cassette player, you have a microphone hooked up to the speaker or to your earphone or to whatever. You can have a conversation. That's not the way it is these days. And in fact, it's vastly different. Now, when you're talking about Zoom or Skype or some other kind of technology that has taken over, you can actually see the person FaceTime. 
if we had FaceTime back then, <laughs> it would be a different animal for sure. But it's not. And I'm happy about that. I'm happy that the technology has allowed us to get more one-on-one. Let's take a short break, and then we'll we'll come back one-to-one and one to everyone here mm-hmm. listening out in the airwaves. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers, and today, Michael G. Nastis here with us. We'll be back. back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today in May, Michael G. Nastas is here with us. And we've got Frank Yuli behind the glass. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Um, and thanks, Michael, for being here. Well, so- thanks for pronouncing my name right. I'm a member of the Funny Names Club, so it gets mispronounced all, all kinds of things. Or Mr. Michael, which I don't like. Mi- Nastos... Nasty. No, nah, I don't like that much. Oh. <laughs> so you got the name right at least. And I like the G because the G represents two things. It's my grandfather's name, George, of which I was named after. George is my middle name, but Gustav, Gust, my father. So I use the Michael G to commemorate both my father and my grandfather. And that's become your professional name. Yeah, I think so. I like to think so. It's better than Mike Nastis. Why? I well, just... it's got, it's got, has it got some... Well, it's you. Yeah. You know, it's you. Yeah. It's you. Tell us about what we just heard at that break, Michael, before we get too far away from it. Well, that's Randy Napoleon's new record. And Randy is an exceptional guitar player who was born in Brooklyn and raised by his parents here in Ann Arbor. And then went out to the world, New York City, worked with the pop singer Michael Buble, worked with the great singer Freddie Cole, Nat King Cole's brother, and then taught here for one year at U of M, and now he's a full professor at Michigan State University, where he met Greg Hill. And Greg Hill is a prolific composer of music. He's not an instrumentalist or a performer, but Greg has written some Latin music, some straight-ahead musics, worked with Rodney Whitaker, who's the chair at MSU, and Randy and he and Rodney all work together on this record, which is called Puppets. Aubrey Johnson is the vocalist who's, once again, from New York City, prominent in her own right. And I did the liner notes for this record. One of the things that I'm really proud of in my history as a writer is being able to write liner notes for Mr. B, J.C. Hurd, Michael Carvin, the drummer, Roy Brooks, the drummer, Ken Cox, other people. Most recently, the Lunar Octet for their album Convergence, where I wrote 15 pages of liner notes. It's unheard of in the CD era. But Greg and Randy allowed me the opportunity to write the liner notes for this record, which just came out the other day, as a matter of fact. It's called Puppets. And as I did research on puppets, I realized the history of puppets goes back to ancient Egypt. And the liner notes convey that there's a history of puppetry that conveys politics, art, romance, uh, and uh, other aspects of puppetry that you wouldn't consider 
in a marionette. Now, marionettes in front of a background, which I've seen, by the way, I've seen several different displays of puppetry until their strings are cut, and then they collapse on the floor. <laughs> so I did all this research about puppets, and I said, if this music is, in fact, connected to ancient Egypt, it's not. It's jazz, obviously. You just heard Aubrey Johnson scatting. That it's different than the idea of the ancient puppetry, yet it still has its human connotations. And, and I just found this fascinating as I did the research before I wrote the liner notes. And now it's on a full one-page promo sheet. The record just came out. It's on OA2 Records. Randy is playing just extraordinarily well, as he has for many years when I met him as a student when he was about 13. He performed at the Ypsilanti Heritage Festival, where I was a judge, and we gave him a scholarship because he was just so great. But he's come a long way, although... That sounds a little cliche to me because he's come short distances here and there to get to the prominence where he is now. He's a very practiced musician, has a wonderful family. His parents, Davi and Greg, are wonderful people, and they have an artistic background. So it's natural that he would do that. So, I mean, in knowing him all these years and hearing him play and just being astonished by what he does, um, it just seems to me like there's a lot of connection between the tradition, the history, contemporary, and modern music. It all works together, unless you just want to ignore some of those aspects and not worry about it. Why do that? Well, I, I, don't, guess, I don't know why I would do that, because I, I, I still kind of listen to the music that I listened to when I was a teenager and 20 years old. I still listen to Cactus and Bob Seger and the rock people just as much as I listen to Stravinsky and, and John Coltrane or the new people. And, and in the spotlight here, uh, Joel Ross, the vibraphonist, Tamuzia, uh, um, let me see if I can, I can never get her name right. It's Tamuz Nisim, who is a singer from Israel. Gerald Clayton, the piano player, and also the, um, well, I got them all right. Yeah, Benito Gonzalez, the Latin piano player. These people are really playing music of now. They're not stuck in the past. They're not doing standards. They're not interpreting or reinterpreting past songs. They're really great artists in this true sense of artistry. So I'm happy every month, and I'm waiting for my uh, assignments for next month from Hot House to see who I can write about this next month, because it's always surprising to me who I can write about in New York City, even though I don't live there. But I love writing 130 words, giving people kernels of knowledge, a little bit of what they sound like, who they're playing with, and give New York City an idea of, well, this is an artist that intrigues me. Maybe we should go out and hear him. And with the pandemic closing all the, sh the shows in New York City, that kind of put us behind the eight ball for at least eight months. But now we're back. I'm hoping we can stay back. I'm scared of the pandemic still. Um... I think people are reckless and irresponsible and politically driven to not be vaccinated, not wear masks, and not take care of other people. And that's just my personal opinion. I have a political aspect of that that really bothers me. I don't really want to talk about that. But it rears its ugly head in Roe v. Wade and Trump and all this other stuff, what's happening in the Ukraine. I don't like it. I think we should get back to being human beings, real human and humane beings. Yeah. Do you disagree? Oh, no. No, I've been <laughs> nodding away. I've been nodding, nodding away. <laughs> Hopefully nodding out. <laughs> no, not nodding. No, no, not that. Just in full support, Michael. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, well, it was just what I was thinking of um, as you were um, finishing then was thinking about Sun Ra again. Uh-huh. So just thinking about opening outward. And, well, you're writing these furious notes here, T. <laughs> oh. you're, you're making notes about all this stuff that I'm wondering if that's going to go into an archive. Oh, God. Oh, oh no, that's 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 very kind of you, Michael. But um, 
But I, I do want to talk a little. I'm so glad we circled back to Spotlight because I did want to return to that. Yeah, um, Hot House Magazine, New York City. Yeah, so you can you can pick it. The May 2022 edition is now out. Um, and I just love that. I'm hoping to get back to New York City. So I will definitely be picking up a hot house um, once I hit the streets there, whenever that may be. <laughs> it's available online and in print, which is something that many publications don't say anymore. Downbeat is available online and in print. There are other publications, but many of them has gone by the wayside, newspapers especially. Uh, the Ann Arbor News, I was proud to work with them for many years, won a couple of awards you know, for content, along with other writers that I worked with. And the newspaper business is just not the same. And they ignore art, and they ignore culture, and they ignore jazz and blues and world music especially. They're so concentrated on pop music, what's number one this week, talking about the big deal. And it's just not, to me, it's it's it doesn't appeal to me at all. This is why WCBN is more important because WCBN goes away from that norm. For the most part, I know that there are some people that just play music for their friends here at the station, but we do have a cultural heritage built over 51 years. And that goes back to rhythm and blues and great blues and swing and Texas-style blues, and the Down Home Projects, and Bill Monroe for Breakfast, and my good friend Roberto Craig, who does a great show on Saturday mornings from 7 to 9 a.m. called Burnt Offering. My buddy R. Wolf still does traditional, traditional jazz. And there are other shows that we do, and we're, we're talking now more about expanding the Sundays, the world music or diversity or ethnic music shows, to be able to re-include the Latin Hour or maybe um, Mediterranean Diet, which we had, Yalchin, of course, with Dromedary Expression, uh, Express and Turkish Delight. Manos does a great show, Short Stack, every Thursday morning from 6 to 9. you got to hear that show. And he also does a wonderful show called Tempo Rubato, not every Sunday, but most Sundays, when they play classical, chamber, symphonic, or orchestral music. And even progressive music that's coming on these days in the pipeline. So what WCBN has to offer is the thing I'm most proud of. Not my other radio stations where I did commercial stuff or was told what to do, but what I'm able to do with Sounds of the Subcontinent or Pan-African Heartbeat or other shows that we present that have the disc jockey's perspective rather than being told on a playlist what to do. And if we get in the time machine uh, again, Michael, back when you were here at undergrad, um, WCBN was in its, its like earlier days still. And, uh, and there was a, I was, when I was reading, um, one of your pieces, it said it was in a block format, and you were part of a group of students that actually took inspiration from other things that were happening in radio around the area and region and brought Freeform into the station. I think this might have been an R. Wolf's piece on you. Exactly. And so, yeah, do you... Can, so that really intrigued me because because I've only been here since 2007. And so I was thinking that, I don't know, that WCB, WCBN was born in free form. It was just like came out that way. So, yeah, can you yeah fill me in a bit? Every day we had a different block of two hours for different shows. We did a two-hour block of blues. We did a two-hour block of folk. We did a two-hour block of talk shows. We did a two-hour block of blah, blah, blah. And so inspired by our idea of freeform, we thought that maybe we could do something better than the alleged freeform or progressive radio stations in Detroit, WABX. At that point in time, W4, which never really was a progressive radio station, um, WRIF started off progressive, but then went into Burkhard Abrams' block format of rock and roll. And there were other stations around the area. WIQB, which I worked for for a few years, which was originally WNRS and WNRZ, turned into 
a fairly progressive pop radio station before it was taken over by a company in Rochester, New York, and turned into a you know, rock and roll station. So we thought here we had an opportunity to do something. And Freeform, with Ken Friedman, the program director, and others, Ross Ojeda and Dave Harney, were the general manager and music director before I came on, followed by Michael Kremen in my footsteps. God bless him. And they said, okay, let's mix it all up. If we can have enough taste to play Stravinsky and then play Steve Reich and then play a PDQ Bach and then take a break, play Taj Mahal, play Muddy Waters, play Delbert McClinton, take a break. Not It's a smaller block, pretty much, but we could play like, Coltrane and then play Richie Cole and Eddie Jefferson and then take a break. Or we could mix them up in a different kind of way, but tastefully. Now, this is the problem that we have with this huge library. There's so much music. How are you going to pick it all? Sure, you can play Ravi Shankar and play George Harrison and then play, you know, the Beatles. You know, those things make logical sense. <laughs> but wait, why be logical? <laughs> The other thing is that the radio station was really being influenced by the record labels. And this is reflected in the CBN notes. Columbia Records had a big, big influence on this radio station. So did Black Saint Records out of Italy. So did Muse Records, which was pretty much a, a jazz label. So did Capitol Records. So did A&M Records, and we could just go on and on and so on is, with is the big the, labels. Is the influence because they were sending they were sending music our way? And they had reps that were college reps, strictly for college radio. Of course, they wanted to be on commercial radio. I worked for Playboy magazine for a little bit, so I worked the Berserkly Chartbusters and the Berserkly Records, Hamilton, Joe, Frank, and Reynolds, the first first scratch and sniff record, um, you know, Playboy music. Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, I did promotions for them. So we had this broad-based music that in the 70s and 80s still continued, but then it started getting narrower and narrower, and Burkhard Abrams and the you know the Jacobs Brothers just constricted everything to the point where we were irrelevant. Mercury Records would come here regularly, we had labels here in Ann Arbor, Blind Pig Records, of course, based in Ann Arbor at that point in time, based on, you know, the Blind Pig bar. So there were a lot of things that were happening all at once, and we had to sift through them and say, well, we really like this. We don't want to restrict any disc jockeys from playing a song or a couple of songs or producing hits. We left it up to the disc jockeys, and we said, okay, this is an upbeat song, this is a ballad, this is a medium-tempo one, this one's kind of boring, but you can play it. We're not going to tell you what to do. And that's the attitude that persists here at the station now. We don't want to tell the disc jockeys what to do. We'd like to help guide them towards the better stuff and play really good stuff that the community likes. The other thing about WCBN is it's a student-managed radio station, but it is community-oriented. There are other stations that claim to be community-oriented. They're not. They don't want to do anything, help anybody. We've got concert and events information, and every day we talk about something that they're not paying us to talk about. We're promoting the Michigan Theater. We're promoting local events. We're promoting local music. We go as far out as Detroit. We promote Trinisovs. We promote the Royal Oak Music Theater. We pr promote the festivals that are happening. I hear an ad right now we're promoting uh, the movement, the Detroit Electronic Music Festival. These other stations don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about those people. We're happy to talk about them because that's part of the community. If there is a major nonprofit organization that wants to promote their event, Cats, dogs, Humane Society. I mean, just go on and on and on about all the things that we promote that those other community, alleged community radio stations don't want to talk about because they don't pay them. They're not paying them. They're not giving them a fee. 
And it's kind of marvelous to have like all these different people um, who care so much about a place. And some of them, um, like yourself, Michael, or like Frank, who have been part of the the WCBN community in different ways for so for years. Um, and you mentioned students like where you said um, sometimes now students are coming in and they're playing music for their friends. But I, I love that idea, too, because then it becomes part of what we have as an archive of what that would look like also for the future, because it's this continuing experiment of, you know, who that I, it might, I just think it's, it's one. And I also know other students who care so deeply about having access to the different kind of sounds that you can just wander into along the shelves here and find out, as well as people's resources. Absolutely. That'll... And, you know, that's the beauty of WCBN is that what happens, and, and I know we have a couple of minutes before we have to go to a break, maybe not even that. We have students who are learning how to communicate with other people and their friends and university professors and people in the outside world to take all these skills, turning it into a, an actual living. And I was lucky enough to be able to work in radio for 40 years and make a living at it, be unionized, be able to have benefits that I now enjoy, pension, Social Security, in my advanced age. I would only hope that all the students that have learned how to do a trade or a living or an occupation come from the University of Michigan, which they have you know, for decades, into a living that will afford them the opportunity to be able to live life for the rest of their lives and not be broken down. I hope so, too. And I think with DJ Ennui, I love what she's doing. Uh, we have other students that have been here for years and years and years that continue to do radio. And, and I just hope that that is something that WCBN has given them, like WCBN gave to Ken Burns and to Mark Bryant of the Urban League, and to Guy Ludwig and all the other people that I mentioned earlier. Those people have taken their experience from WCBN and turned it into a very, very expansive and world-sharing life that they can give to other people. I'll, I'll add one more person. Claire Tennisketter, um is someone who I know for from WCBN. Mm -hmm. who's, she's um, the producer for uh, The Daily uh, at the New York Times, so she's working um, for the for the good <laughs> and for getting um, deeper notes about uh, stories out there. In the I, world I know too. people who worked with Bob Woodward that came from the University of Michigan. As I mentioned, Tim Reese, who's been the saxophonist for the Rolling Stones for twenty years. We go on and on and on with these people, and I wish I could remember all the names or had a list. Because the people that came up through the 70s and 80s here at WCBN have given to the world. Yes. And, and really have made great contributions. There, there, are some, there, there are probably others that are more famous. Arthur Miller. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But, but, but the fact, Madonna. Here's a good story. I'll make this brief, Frank. Madonna okay. was known to us as a dancer at School of Theater and Dance, and she wasn't very good, and we saw her. She hooked up with a guy named Al Bray. They went to New York City. Al co-wrote all of her songs on the first two albums, and then she dumped him for Sean Penn. But we remember Madonna here at the university. We remember Gilda Radner here at the university. There are other people that have just, you know, given to the world in ways that the <laughs> University of Michigan possibly couldn't have imagined them being as world famous. Go Blue, Go Blue, yep. and WCBN FM Forever. Michael G. Nastas today on Living Writers. Michael, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
WCBNFM on Arbor Archives. Original air date November 11, 2008 at 9 a.m.